Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, tomorrow is the National Day of Prayer. It's a day that's been set aside some years ago, actually, for those of us, those believers in Christ, to gather together or separately and to pray for our nation. Now, tomorrow, the church is going to be open from morning till afternoon all through the day. And on the screens will be a scrolling list of things to pray for from federal government officials, local government officials, church leaders, military concerns, families, etc. A number of them to pray for them specifically. So if you have time in the morning, you have time at noon, you have time in the afternoon, come by and just at leisure come into the sanctuary here. Uh, the uh, request will be up on the screen. You'll probably find a few other people. You may want to gather together with them and pray. But tonight we're going to start that. And uh, the theme of tonight is really this National Day of Prayer. And we're going to segue that into communion as well as some scriptures out of the book of Micah. So if you have your Bible, and I trust that you all do, that you would open the Bible to Micah chapter 5. We have been going through Micah, but there's a few verses in particular that we want to look at for tonight's communion service. Now, the National Day of Prayer became an annualized event back in 1952 when the Congress of the United States, along with the President of the United States at that time, Harry S. Truman, called upon all Americans to establish an annual day of prayer to pray for our country. Now, that's nothing new. We have a long tradition in leaders of our country calling people to pray. You could go back in your history all the way back to 1775 when the Continental Congress would gather together and call people together to pray for God's wisdom as they were forming in that year a brand new nation known as the United States of America, which became a nation in 1776. But a year before, groups were gathering to pray for wisdom for the formation of this country. Another notable year was in 1863, when another American president, at that time Abraham Lincoln, called upon the people of America to pray. And I want to read a portion of what he said in that speech to the American public. That's not it. This is it. We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers and in wealth and in power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all of these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient 
to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God who made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power, to confess our national sins, and to pray for clemency and for forgiveness. Isn't that a great speech? A great rallying call for the people of America to pray in humility, in repentance, and to depend once again on God. And that's what this National Day of Prayer is. It's our voice in chorus with so many other voices telling God, we need you. We depend upon you. We cry out to you for favor, for forgiveness, and for continued blessing. Through the years, many presidents have given speeches, such speeches as this, looking to the future in hopes that the future would be brighter, better, hoping for a new era, a new age, every one of them longing for peace and prosperity. One of the most famous speeches by another American president was Franklin Delano Roosevelt's speech called The Four Freedoms. It was in 1941. Now, that wasn't his most famous speech, by the way. You know his most famous speech. His most famous speech was given 11 months later, on December 8th of 1941, the day after the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. That's his most famous speech. In fact, I remember hearing sound clips of that all throughout my younger years, and still today you get it on the Internet. If you heard it, yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date that will live in infamy. And I remember it clearly. That was his most famous speech. But there's another one that he gave 11 months earlier that I want to bring up now because it segues beautifully with a portion that we're reading before we take communion and pray. The speech was the four freedoms. And that president, President Roosevelt, believed that every American should be given the security of enjoying four freedoms. The freedom of speech, that is the ability to say whatever you want without government impinging upon that. Number two, the freedom to worship, called the freedom of religion, that each American could worship God according to the dictates of his own heart. Number three, the freedom from want, that America would become a prosperous country and take care of its own. Number four, the freedom from fear. Those were the four freedoms in that speech. But a prophet in the Old Testament named Micah looks forward to a period in history, not just American history, not just Israeli history, but world history, when there would be the kind of government, a perfect government, a theocracy established again, a benevolent dictatorship in which four freedoms would be enjoyed. And Micah articulates four freedoms. Now, he does it a little bit differently. It's not the same as Roosevelt's four freedoms. According to Micah, there would be a coming government, a coming kingdom, a perfect kingdom. Now, to have a perfect kingdom, you've got to have a perfect king. And he'll cover that in just a moment. But in chapter 4 of Micah, 
He talks about a future kingdom that will have four freedoms. Number one, the freedom from ignorance. People knowing the will of God as the Lord teaches all mankind from Mount Zion. Number two, the freedom from war. A worldwide peace that would sweep over the entire globe and mankind would not raise up sword against each other anymore. They'll beat their swords into plowshares. Number three and four, very similar to Roosevelt's, the freedom from want and the freedom from fear. Those are the four freedoms that Micah articulates. So with that in mind, let's just briefly read them before we jump into the very next chapter and look at a couple of verses. Verse 1 of chapter 4, we covered it last week. By review, we go over it again. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house will be established on the top of the mountains. It will be established on the hills. The people shall flow to it. That is a spontaneous movement toward it. Many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways. And we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion, the law shall go forth and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. That's the first freedom. Freedom from ignorance. All mankind knowing the truth once and for all laid bare. Second freedom. Verse 3, the freedom from war. He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations far off. And they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. Now the third freedom is closely related to the second one. After the freedom from ignorance, after the freedom from war, comes the freedom from want. That makes sense. Now all of the money that was spent on warfare at one time is going to be used for living, not killing, for life and not death. And so it says in the very next verse, everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree. That's an Old Testament metaphor for worldwide prosperity. And the last part of verse 4 is the fourth freedom, which is freedom from fear. No one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Now here's a question that Micah also answers. How will it be possible for those four freedoms to exist? Answer, you got to have the right person implementing it. To have a perfect kingdom, as he described, you need the perfect king. And so his theme is not only wait till the future comes, there will be a perfect kingdom, a perfect government, but it will be governed by the perfect governor, the perfect monarch, the perfect benevolent dictator, the Messiah. Now you know that the single theme of the entire Bible is Jesus Christ. He finds his fulfillment in every portion of the Old Testament. He even said one time to the religious leaders, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. But these are they which testify about me. The whole Old Testament, he would say, speaks about him. 
I have come, he said, in the volume of the book to do your will, O God. On another occasion, he spoke to the religious leaders about Moses, and he said, check Moses out, for Moses wrote about me. So the entire theme of the Bible is Jesus Christ. And the prophets tell us that he'll come once and then a second time. First, to take away sin, redemption. Second, to implement salvation. Implement it on a worldwide basis. So now Micah explains how those four freedoms are going to exist by the coming one. So chapter 5 opens up. And it might seem as an odd opening, but let me explain it. Now gather yourselves in troops, O daughter of troops. He has laid siege against us, and they will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. Now the reason that sounds odd is because that verse doesn't really belong there. Let let me explain. You know that the verses and chapters in the Bible were not added by the authors of Scripture. They were added years later. And there are a couple of different renderings of them. For instance, in some of the Hebrew translations, verse 1 of chapter 5 isn't in chapter 5. It's the last verse of chapter 4. That's because that's where it belongs. You see, what this verse is, is going off of the previous section of Scripture, which talks about the Assyrians that will come in in the intermediate steps and the Babylonians and take them captive. And so, verse 1 of chapter 5, or we'd say the last verse of chapter 4, speaks about the ruler or the judge of Israel at that time being severely punished. And we believe that that verse finds its fulfillment, now listen carefully, in 2 Kings chapter 25. The king at that time, or the judge this verse speaks about, was a king named Zedekiah, who when the Babylonians came in, treated him shamefully, killed his sons in front of his eyes, then plucked out or destroyed his own eyesight so that the last memory this king would have is watching his two sons die in front of him. Brutal. Zedekiah was the end of the reign of the throne of David. Now this is important. Here you got a prophet saying the best ultimate kingdom is coming and there's going to be four freedoms that will be shared worldwide. But then he says that this judge of Judah, Zedekiah, is going to suffer shame. It was fulfilled historically, 2 Kings 25. There is a prophecy, and and it's a puzzle. In Jeremiah chapter 22, there is a prediction that the household of King David, or the royal throne of David, will be ended And a curse is pronounced on a future king called Jeconiah. His bloodline, and thus the entire royal bloodline of King David, was cursed. Now, as it happened historically, Jeconiah was taken off the throne. A uh, puppet king, a vassal king, was put in his place named 
Zedekiah. He was the final king before the captivity. The rabbis for years, in looking at that prediction in Jeremiah 22, that the royal lineage of the household of David had a curse on it, they were scratching their heads saying, if that's true, how could there ever be a Messiah who will rule and reign over the Jews? For we know the prophets say he will come from the household, the lineage of King David. He hasn't come yet. Now the bloodline has been cursed. We're hopeless. So with that in mind, verse 2 begins the chapter. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. See the contrast? Just when the prophet predicts the judgment upon the house of Judah, which Jeremiah also says will end the royal lineage of King David, The prophet Micah, with a smile, says, Ah, but you, Bethlehem. Bethlehem? Why why Bethlehem? You see, nobody really knew much about Bethlehem. It was one of those insignificant towns. I'm not going to name any. But I bet you can all think of some towns around the country, around the state, that you would say this would be like the most unlikely place for somebody important, famous, wonderful, great to come from. That was Bethlehem. You would expect, if it was important at all, to find it in a couple of important places in the Old Testament, like Joshua 15, which lists all of the notable towns in Judah. It's not listed. Or Nehemiah chapter 11. Notable towns of Judah, not listed. In fact, just so you wouldn't get it confused, because there were two little tiny towns called Bethlehem, one in the northern area of Zebulun, where that tribe settled, and one down south where Judah settled. It says, you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. That's the southern one down in Judah in the district of Ephrathah. That's the one it's talking about. This insignificant little town the ruler would come from. The perfect kingdom has to have the perfect king. And listen to the description. Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth unto me, this is God speaking through the prophet, in other words, he will carry out all of my will, The one to be the ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. You know how many years before Jesus came this verse was written? 700. 700 years. 700 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, a prophet named Micah said, the one who's going to be the ruler of the perfect kingdom will be the perfect king because he will be from eternity and he'll be born in Bethlehem. Now, you know, God has to engineer that. Especially since the one who is going to be born 
comes from parents who don't live anywhere near Bethlehem. They happen to live way up north in Nazareth. Well, God, how are you going to get these two people who don't live in Bethlehem to move down there so that that little baby can be born in the town like the prophet said? Well, you know, God had a plan. He moved a guy who thought he was really important, Caesar. I guess he was important to the worldly people at the time. He was actually a puppet on God's chessboard, a pawn. God moved him to tax the world and force everybody in Israel to go back to the town of their family origin, which for Mary and Joseph, being from the house of David, would be Bethlehem. Problem solved. But think, I don't know if you've ever thought this, but, you know, that's a long, hard journey for a pregnant woman to make. If that donkey makes one slip, if she has any complications in pregnancy... There's going to be no Messiah born in Bethlehem. And thus there's not going to be any salvation for the world. And thus there's not going to be any ruler over this perfect kingdom. God's hand was on every single moment. And the description of him is this, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Interesting, isn't it? The one who would be presented in time, being born in Bethlehem, as the prophet said here, would be one who came from eternity past, whose goings forth have been from everlasting. Hmm. It seems to indicate the mix of divinity and humanity. Now, you know, Micah had a contemporary, didn't he? Another prophet who lived and they knew each other, named Isaiah. And Isaiah says something similar to that. Don't have to turn to it. It's familiar enough. I'll read it to you. Isaiah, the buddy of Micah, said, For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government, there's that perfect kingdom, will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. What did Isaiah say? He said, well, there's going to be a baby born, a child born will also be the son given, will also be the ruler of the government, will also be the everlasting God, the Prince of Peace. All of that in one person. It's very similar to what the prophet Micah said. So this prediction of a perfect kingdom who would be ruled over by the perfect king. Now here's the rub. Did you know when Jesus was born that a lot of the scholars who lived around Jerusalem knew that the Messiah, the Deliverer, the Prince, would be born in Bethlehem. Remember, Herod got all upset, and he asked his theologians, Hey, what does uh, your Bible say about this Messiah who's coming? Where is he to be born? And if you remember, they had the answer on the tip of their tongue. It said, In Bethlehem, for the prophet says, and they quote Micah 5.2, But you, Bethlehem, In the land of Judah, though you are small among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one who is to be the ruler in Israel. Quoted it like that. Here's the rub. 
None of them walked four miles to Bethlehem to see if it was true. They could quote the scripture. Not one of them could get off their duff and check it out to see if indeed it happened. I wonder what would have happened if they went. I wonder if they would have applied personally what they read personally. I bet it could have sparked a national revival. A revival young and old, very religious, unreligious, national repentance that could have started among that echelon of leadership. But it didn't happen. Now tonight and tomorrow, we're going to pray for our nation. There are similarities between ancient Israel and modern America. Been through that. Won't get into it tonight. Don't have enough time. But we are going to pray for our country. We're going to pray that our country recognizes their creator. Recognizes the one that God sent as salvation. Because our country was founded upon, at least in many cases, the belief of men and women that God sent his son to die for the sins of the world. And we want to follow his will in this nation. And so we're going to pray. We know what's coming. We know that there is coming a perfect kingdom superintended by a perfect king. And those four freedoms will be one day over the whole earth. Freedom from ignorance. Freedom from war. Finally. Freedom from fear. Freedom from want. But until then, we need totally to depend on God for the future of this country. We need to ask God's forgiveness. We need to pray for national leaders. Because as we do, it's part of that direction that we were given by the Lord Jesus. And when you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom, your will be done. That's why we have this National Day of Prayer. Because as Jesus taught, we're saying, We as a nation... And let it begin right here. Say, we need you. We depend upon you. Now, to help us along, some of the pastors are going to come up. And they're going to lead us in prayer for different aspects of our country. So I'm going to ask them to do that. Government, so if we could bow our heads and close our eyes and seek the Lord. Heavenly Father, with similar words to that of... The prophet Daniel, as he prayed on behalf of his nation, we too now pray on behalf of this nation, Lord. Lord, you are great and awesome. You always fulfill your promises of unfailing love to those who love you and keep your commandments. But Lord, as a nation, we've sinned. We've done wrong. We've rebelled against you and we've scorned your commands and regulations. But because you're merciful and forgiving, we turn our attention to you, Lord. And we come to you on behalf of our federal leaders. Father, we do pray for President Bush and his wife, that as they prayerfully seek your will, you would give that will to them. And Lord, for President Bush and Vice President Cheney, that they as a team, God, would serve and lead with wisdom, with humility, with strength, with determination, with unity, with foresight that comes from you. 
Father, we pray for our Secretary of State, Condoleezza Rice, that you would give her the ability to be a godly diplomat to the nations. We pray for the Secretary of Defense, Robert Gates, that, Lord, you would lead him as to how to rightly defend these people, this nation. God, we pray for the Secretary of the Treasury, Henry Paulson, that, Lord, he would have from you insight, knowledge, wisdom as to how to lead our economic structure in this nation. We pray for Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez. God, that you would give him the ability to adjudicate rightly, fairly, with justice, according to the law. We pray for our National Security Advisor, Stephen Hadley, that he too, Lord, would have wisdom, discernment, vision, to know how to lead our abilities, our attempts as a nation to secure ourselves, Lord. Father, we pray for the Director of the National Intelligence, Mike McConnell, that he would be blessed with knowledge and with insight. And, Father, we lift up to you our Supreme Court Justices, Father Judge John Roberts, John Stevens, Antonin Scalia, Anthony Kennedy, David Souter, Clarence Thomas, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Stephen Breyer, and Samuel Alito. Lord, these U.S. Supreme Court justices have such responsibility, God, that will determine, Father, that which is deemed legal and not legal in this nation. Lord, whether it be regarding abortion, euthanasia, the rights of men and women, children, Lord, Please, Father, just as the Scripture says, you turn the hearts of kings in whatever direction you want them to go, that these men and women on this Supreme Court, Father, would be led, even if it would be unknowingly, by your will. And so, Father, we know that you brought lasting honor to your name by rescuing your people from Egypt in a great display of power. We know that. We see that. But we, Lord have also sinned. We're full of wickedness as a nation. But God, we ask that you would hear your servants' prayers. Listen as we plead. For your own sake, Lord, smile on your people. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. For your own sake, our God, do not delay. For your people, bear your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.